The Red Review is brought to you by Growth Ignition, the transformation consulting, training and enabling tech firm in the work winning space and their product set, the Bid Toolkit, the online bid processing guide with APMP accredited training and tools to download. Hello there and welcome to The Red Review with me, Jeremy Brim. Uh, we've got an interesting episode this week. Uh, we've got a session with a guy called James Tattersfield uh, from Polar Insight. Um, I'll let him explain what they do. Let's get into it. So hello, James. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on because it's an interesting one, this one. Uh, yeah, we've been talking for a while on and off and just hadn't managed to get get round to getting you on onto the podcast and, and doing some stuff together. But I remember you coming to our breakfast events and having some interesting chats back when the world wasn't quite such a crazy place. And where, where are you in the world these days? You used to be in really exotic locations, so, you know, Portugal and all sorts. For sure. I, I used to be in Lisbon. Um, I'm currently in, in St. Ives in Cornwall. So I'm just by the by the sea, which is a nice, uh, very calm place to be for all of the madness that we find ourselves in at the moment. Um, but yeah. Southwest. I'm very jealous. Yeah, I told the wife actually after our, after last time we spoke that you were down down in that neck of the woods, and we were both quite jealous. Fair play to you. Great great spot to pick for this sort of storm. Um, yeah, so so go on then. Give us a bit of uh, background to yourself. Introduce yourself to the listeners, viewers. Sure. So um, I'm James Tassfield, um, managing director of a company called Polar Insight. Uh, and basically we're a research and strategic communications network um, and we work predominantly with government suppliers around the world helping them to understand different communities and citizens so that they can deliver better services to them. Um, we do a lot of work around procurement and bidding trying to help basically provide kind of insight and intelligence in the first part of the process as people design and deliver government services because um, we think that that's a really important area basically to bring the citizen into and uh, consult them around their particular needs so that we can then deliver kind of better more democratic services to them um, across the course of the of the contracts that our clients are bidding for. Okay so what what type of suppliers to government are you working with what sectors or verticals do, do they find themselves in? So we, we do a lot in the in the kind of outsourcing, uh, BPO, that kind of space. Um, so a lot of like big technology companies, big consultancies. Um, we do a little bit in uh, in construction as well. Um, but it tends to be it tends to be organisations or our clients tend to be organisations that are delivering services uh, directly to citizens, basically. Um, so they need to be able to understand what citizens expect of a of a service in, in terms of you know interactions with that service technologies how they like to communicate with it um, and they also need to understand the problems that those citizens are trying to solve essentially um, and then you know they use that information as a way to be able to solve those things appropriately so i think this is a really interesting space so i i, I grew up in uh, working in outsourcing when i, I suspect still at school um at Mooshell and companies like that back in the day and mm. I think it would have been really useful so what how since how long how old's the business now how long have you been doing this um so we started in 2017 um so four years ish okay. and and what were you doing before that was it similar stuff 
for an employer role? So I've kind of I've I've always spent my career really at the at the intersection of of like the public and private sector essentially. Um, so I, previously I was working in a like strategic communications context, so doing things where we would be trying to create some sort of uh, behaviour change or trying to um, enable a certain um, change to occur within so in society. So that might be, you know, a particular health outcome that you're trying to reach, or it might be that you're trying to reduce crime. Um, you know, these kind of big social issues that the government is trying to tackle. Um, we tended to work creating campaigns to tackle those things, but do that by going out to the people that those things impact. So you're kind of bringing like the end user, the beneficiary, the service user, however you want to call them, into the design of things that will ultimately um, be targeted back towards them. So in a strategic communications context, that's you know an advertising campaign, uh, a piece of like comms material. Um, but where we've, I suppose, where we've evolved and you know and our polar insight has come about is that we're taking that type of model and applying it in a uh, public service context. So you're bringing in the end user or the citizen into the design of that particular service as a whole, as opposed to just how that um, service is communicated to its users. That's really interesting. So how have things changed since you started the business and maybe a bit before? Because uh, I guess that's a really evolving space with technology and in engagement with citizens. For sure. And I mean, I think it's the type of thing which has, you know, where it's been most effective, uh, there's been people doing things in that way for quite a long time. Um, and then there's been kind of everyone else not doing that. And usually the outcome hasn't been as, as impactful or as effective as it could be. Um, where I think things have changed is I think people have become more more aware of the benefits that that approach can bring so there's been much more uh, visibility over things like human-centered design user-centered design the idea that um, uh, you know the services and products should be designed around the needs of their end user as opposed to the needs of the people who are delivering them you know we've, we've kind of seen quite a shift I think generally across um, uh, across multiple industries at the same time, really, you know, as as you know, as there's been, I suppose, a kind of democratization of a lot of services, and as there's been more um, circumstances where there's visibility over a particular way in which something's constructed, or you know, there's transparency over the way in which a particular um, you know public service is, is delivered. Um, I suppose you've seen this leaning towards needing to be a bit more open and in doing that needing to trust that the end users of a particular service or the beneficiaries are ultimately the best people to inform the design of that particular uh, thing, you know, service, product, whatever it might be. Um, mm. So it's, it's kind of a, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to say how exactly it's changed because it's almost like the intersection of a few different things happening at the same time. Technologies come forward. Um, there's been a driver around the world, uh, you know, generally, both politically, but also culturally towards um, people, things being more, you know, democratically designed, uh, citizens having a, a bigger voice over the type of um, services that they um, received from governments, things like that. There's been kind of multiple things going on side by side, I suppose. And as the, I guess the pandemic's 
changed the game, isn't it? What you've seen to date, and I guess where where is it going to go? I guess where's this stuff going to go in the future? I think, I mean, I think with the pandemic, it's something where there is. I think people have. So there's there's two things that have happened side by side, really. I think in some cases. Um, there's been a, a kind of a leveling between people. So this idea of you know people sitting in a in an ivory tower designing uh, a service or designing a product and kind of putting that out to the market and and almost using that um, position of power has in some way dissipated because that um, that difference between those two people is no longer there to some extent because at the end of the day we're all we're all sat here on Zoom talking to one another. Um, and so I think some of those structures are beginning to, to come down a little bit. Obviously, there's a lot of those baked into society, which will continue to be there. But I think there's been a push towards certainly, you know, user research, including end users in the design of products and services. I think that's um, certainly jumped forward over the last few years. Um, but yeah, kind of dramatically so over the pandemic. Um, but I think similarly, there's also been a um, you know a number of things which have happened that I suppose heighten the heighten the problem and uh, cement the need for this type of work, which is you know we've we've got a much better idea of in situations like this you know who are the communities out there who are being impacted most um, by the pandemic you know there is uh, obviously kind of stark differences in who has like succeeded and who hasn't succeeded in, in situations like this. Um, so that presents a set of opportunities for saying, we need to understand this in a bit more detail and we need to be going out to communities, going out to different uh, groups of citizens and really finding out what their experience is because their experience isn't necessarily the experience of, you know, uh, a group of people sat in, in a, in a a bid room, for example, putting together a, a bid for a, a technology service or a, a you know a consultancy service. Um, so what we're trying to do is, is essentially be that voice for those people who are less heard, that are less recognised, but ultimately are going to be using the services that, that you're designing as a team, you know, and the services that are being put together. So I think that yeah, as I say, that the pandemics had that kind of it's kind of had two things it's like accelerated some of our work in in one way in terms of methodologies and things but it's also like really really heightened how important this can be um because you see you know you see that different um even at the moment with with what the government's doing in terms of their response to it and a lot of covid19 recovery around the world has really stark differences uh, to people's approach to that and and whether they do it from kind of the ground up or whether they do it from a you know command and control point of view um, and I suppose we're trying to ensure that if you're doing it from a command and control point of view it's at least based on some evidence and some some research rather than you know assumptions or um, uh, well yeah uh, assumptions or or guesses essentially which it, as we all know can actually be the case in a lot of circumstances. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's there's been some gaps on the whiteboard on a few deals that I've been involved in, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I'll stick a few post-its in that bit. That'll be fine. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know where you're coming from. I, I just think it's going to be really fascinating coming out of the pandemic. Um, how business 
office and governments and society changes and evolves at a more accelerated pace. I mean, you can look, look back at Obama's final speech, you know, more than four years ago now, um, which was all about uh, automation, AI and its effect mm. on the kind of next industrial revolution. And, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult from our lens here in the UK with having such a diabolical performance you know we've dealt with the pandemic but also brexit and silly trade stuff going on but we're, we're not focused on the fact that the world's going to change soon very dramatically mm. and affect society very dramatically like it's going to be another industrial revolution with uh, autonomous vehicles or, or, or autonomous self-serve environments you know amazon only in the last week opened their their first staffless shop basically um mm. you know that that kind of stuff and and ai in particular um you know it's, it's quite interesting I, I work in the built environment quite often um and you know there's been a conversation now going on for a few years about how quantity surveyors will become extinct yeah uh, because you've got bin models you've got uh, all the tech in the world figuring all that stuff out with you aligned with modern methods of construction and design for manufacturing assembly, you know, buildings will be built in a factory and bolted together yeah. uh, on site. And as they should be, because uh, the, the, the industry is 40 years behind the car manufacturing industry, it's quite right that we do that. But the, the impact on society and communities and the kind of work that you do, mm. I think you're going to have a really fascinating 10 years mm. of helping organisations keep, keep, try and keep track of what the fuck to do with that. Um, but I, I, I just think it's going to accelerate coming out of the, the pandemic, mm. uh, where people work, how that works, in, in what model. Um, mm. You know, I, th I think staff have suddenly got a voice in this stuff as well. I think as well, there, there's something in that in terms of, you know, as we move into this age of, as you, as you mentioned, you know, increasing automation, technology, AI, you know, whatever buzzword you want to to kind of throw at it, we're moving into this really, really intense period of change and an intense period of, of technological automation. And I think for us, you know, we see that as the things that will become uh, different about services or the ways in which organisations will differentiate themselves will be with the more human aspects of things. So the things you can't automate, you know, the creativity, the emotion, the nuance that is built into you know, into, into human society, basically, and has built up over, you know, thousands of years. That's the type of thing which um, is where, you know, we think brands are going to be competing on that as opposed to, you know, a base layer um, of technology. You can see that in, in loads of different contexts, right? So as, you know, as Amazon eats the world and kind of or consumes everything, basically, you can imagine, you know, you have a few big players and you can see this at the moment. You have your Googles, your Amazons, um, you know, those type of players providing a level of infrastructure at the bottom and then everyone else building on top of them. But it's not like, you know, it's not like that's going to be a competitive difference, because if everyone's got the power of Amazon at their hands or everyone's got the power of Google at their hands, it's going to be the people who really understand their, their customer, the citizen, the community, you know, whatever that end user is as you say they're employees um if you can create uh, like a meaningful experience for someone on a uh you know on a level which is i suppose deeper than just a kind of a basic need that's met by a technology then you can you know you can compete much more effectively and um 
and provide a much more uh, just provide a better service, really. Yeah, I mean, I I get quite pissed off with um, planners, for instance, or tra transport planners. Mm. We've seen bent on everybody using a bus or a train mm. uh, and cycling to a train station. Uh, we live in Britain, it pisses down quite often. Um, we're human beings that make decisions based on how we feel that day and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And you can drive people towards that. But fundamentally, if, if Tesla build, uh, you know, uh, an autonomous vehicle and we, and we as humans sign up, the technology already exists, actually. If we just sign off, if we make that leap and let that happen, yeah. uh, no one's going to own a car anymore because it will just be a utility. There will just be vehicles cycling around unless you're rich and you want to own your own one and don't want to sit in the same car someone else is saying yeah. um and so you know transport planning for that kind of infrastructure for communities mm. and things like hs2 doesn't doesn't make sense but i've, I've challenged some transport planners on that as a for instance mm. uh, and they just they just don't want to hear it because they can't can't see it yet uh, it's all about certainty isn't it so yeah. you, you know if you build a train line, how that works and what that looks like and roughly what it costs and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, if you, if you want to build one of those tube, vacuum tube jobbies, um, you know, that's, yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's a bit of a different ballpark, isn't it? But the first country that gets Hyperloop to work and then what the last mile looks like autonomously are going to have a competitive advantage on the world stage. Mm. Um, and we're we're building a fucking train line with HS2 based on 1950s technology. Mm. Uh, it, 100 billion quid, or 103 or 106, or however much it's gone up this week. So um, I, I, I think there's going to be an awakening to that uh, as the techno as the market and technology begins to move on. Uh, I think uh, on, um, without government support or regulation, I, I think we're going to get caught with a bunch of stuff. And thinking that gets outdated quite quickly and it's going to be quite interesting to see how contractors and governments and outsourcing organizations and the rest of them all work around that um exactly it's going to be yeah. and I, I think that i mean that ties into i mean ties into something which is in which we think about a lot which is how when people are i suppose when you're in the position of being an outsourcer or you're being uh, you know, you're delivering a particular service to, let's say, government. I think we often find that people get into a situation where they're they're kind of so focused on delivering uh, delivering value to their their customer, which is the government, that they almost kind of overextend in that area and neglect the fact that the reason they've been brought in in the first place is to look after the people that the government cares about which are the population and you know and and those communities so you get into this weird situation where that gets worse and worse over time where the government wants them to focus more and more on providing good solutions to the public and uh, the outsourcer wants to provide better and better solutions to the government and so you know you've got this kind of strange set, set of kind of odd circumstances and incentives which are set up so no one's really benefiting, you know, citizens aren't benefiting, the government isn't benefiting and, and the kind of outsourced business isn't, isn't benefiting. And as you say, with something like HS2, you know, or, or just or kind of infrastructure projects or transport, whatever it might be, 
I suppose what we're trying to do is reintroduce you know the citizen or the end user into that conversation because ultimately they should have more of a um, you know they should have more of a, uh, a say essentially like you know there's a lot of decisions made in terms of um, transport spending for example you know which might be we're going to reduce the time between these two cities by three minutes you know uh, it, it's a two-hour journey and we're going to make it a one-hour 57 journey ultimately a, a, a person a passenger sitting on that train doesn't care that doesn't impact their day at all um, whereas you know there will be a calculation made at some point to say if we can save those three minutes you know then that person will become more productive and they will do you know x y and z um, and unfortunately in the way in which people think and, and act as to refer to what you were saying before about if it's raining you're going to make a, set, a different set of um, decisions to if it wasn't raining if you're on your your bike going to the train station it's exactly the same thing you know the, what the I suppose what those uh, passengers need in that context is not a, a two minute reduction in their journey time you know you could probably use the amount of money that was spent on him on improving that infrastructure and creating that cut in uh, travel time use that money much more effectively to improve you know services on that train line you could improve people's end-to-end -end journey you could look at you know connections to and from the like the hub stations at the either end of that journey there's kind of so many different ways of playing it which if people are consulted and some of those journeys are thought about in, in some detail you know those customer journeys um, you can really make quite you know dramatic improvements to those services which don't cost billions and billions of pounds you know they might still cost hundreds of millions but that's a pretty you know that's a pretty dramatic difference between the two so that's kind of the world yeah, we sit in i suppose trying to make things more effective by talking to the people who are going to use that service so is it do, do you get to work client side much and try and inform i mean really i think procurement functions, the, the, the government departments mm. should be doing this work up front rather than you know, and engaging people like you to support them with mm. that rather than you trying to reverse engineer. Because the, the problem we find is that they, they don't do hackathons and you know, proper market engagement. They punt, you know, they get some consultants to help them build a spec. But of course, everyone's so risk averse that the spec is what they did last time. Um, yeah. and, or maybe there's a bit of a change of contract, but really it's what they did last time. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you end up trying to fill in some spaces mm. with you've been given rather than inform a spec that actually works for citizens in the first place. So do, do you get to get client side on stuff or should you? Yes. Well, so so we've done a bit of both. Um, we tend to do more work on the bidder side. Um, but we have we have worked on client side in terms of, uh, as you say, kind of, I suppose, um, crafting what a particular tender should look like or, or what that basically getting to the heart of what that particular organization should be buying. Um, so we, we did some work, uh, for example, in did some work in Northern Ireland with uh, DWP um, and that was looking at basically how do you um, how do you procure the right services for young people uh, living in Northern Ireland? Uh, it was focused on on uh, kind of like financial advice, basically, and financial education for, for people living in that area. Um, and so we were doing some work up front to basically do a bit of pilot activity to figure out, 
you know, what are the needs of people in that area and therefore what should you procure to be able to meet those needs effectively. So exactly as you say, it's, it's I suppose it's looking um, at, the, at the buyer side of the equation as opposed to the bidder side of it. Um, but it's certainly something, you know, it's certainly something we think should happen more. And I think it's something which generally, it's certainly in my experience, I think the public thinks is happening much more than it probably actually is in reality. You know, I think I think people make that assumption that um, there is a level of research and you know design thinking that goes into some of these decisions in terms of um, commissioning or procurement of certain services. And I think the reality is is different to that. Not everywhere, but you know, on the whole, I would say that probably happens less than it than it does. Yeah. And what, what kind of tools and resources do you apply to this? How, how do you guys work? You know, what, what are people buying when they get you guys on board? So we've got a network of about 150 researchers um, around the country um, and they have uh, they have a, a kind of a variety of, of backgrounds and experiences and skills that we pull together depending on what we're doing basically. So we work across government um, so as you can imagine there are, are kind of uh, you know, we need a wide range of expertise, I suppose, in terms of the researchers that we're working with. Um, and basically what we'll what we'll do is we'll work with our clients to, uh, first of all, figure out who they need to be going to understand. So, uh, you know, stakeholder mapping, trying to get them to a point where they have a, a you know, a very good understanding of these are the people who are involved in the service. You know, this is... Um, who we need to understand more, this is who we need to understand less, this is who we need to to monitor. I think, I mean, as far as I um, understand it, you know, there, there's some bits, some really good bits in the in the bid toolkit about that in terms of, you know, getting pe just a good understanding of, of um, who within a bid or service is relevant and who's not. Um, and then once, you know, once people have got a good understanding of that, once our clients have got a good understanding of of who's involved um, will then conduct research with them. So that's anything from surveys, interviews, films, um, lots of different methodologies and mediums. Um, and then we'll we'll basically work with our clients to be able to use that to not only impact the design of their solution, uh, but they use those materials to be able to, uh, I suppose, market and uh, sell the, the services that they're that they're working on really and that they're putting together um we and it's that it's that dual role of essentially being able to uh create you know human-centered services but also demonstrate to others that those services are human-centered which is which is quite important um and something which is an important piece for moving as i mentioned before you know there are large swathes of government for which this type of thinking is relatively new um, and so part of that behaviour change is about being able to communicate the fact that this work is going on and that it's having a beneficial impact on the process. So, you know, we went and spoke to this many people. They said this. As a result, we've designed our service like this. That's a very, it's a very powerful um, narrative, I suppose, for our clients to be able to um, embed into the work they do. That's really cool. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's, it, I think it's a really interesting service and space that people should probably consider uh, more for their for their markets particularly particularly construction in terms of end users of assets that they're being asked to use 
you know, bigger regeneration schemes, all, all of that kind of stuff too. Mm. So it's thank you for that. So we'll, we'll, we'll finish off with the sort of gimmicky uh, podcasty type stuff. So tell us, tell us about uh, heaven and hell. So something that's gone really great, perhaps in the bidding space, and something that's 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 you've learned some lessons from. Let's say. Uh, this is this is me. But this is kind of us personally, or or something that we've seen. Uh, oh, either. I mean, it should be us personally. But if you've seen an absolute clanger that, that, that you could talk about that somebody else's, then go for it. <laughs> I mean, I think the, I think I'd probably look at this from the perspective of, if you think about kind of different points of the process, it's almost the process that we go through when we come into a particular setting. So say, for example, someone comes to us with like a particularly complex bid, or they come to us and say, you know, we want to move into this particular area. Um, and they're thinking in a very, I suppose, solution focused way. Um, that's kind of for us, we, you know, we would consider that almost kind of like the bidding hell stage of, you know, very solution focused, very focused on assumptions. We think we broadly think this might be the best way to go, but we're not really sure. And I think over the course of, um, you know, of, of them working with us and, and the course of, I suppose, that behaviour change of getting into, okay, we don't know the answer to this, let's go, out, let's go out and conduct some research to find out that answer. I think it's that transition moves us quite nicely from kind of bidding hell into, into bidding heaven to some extent, because that's kind of ultimately what we want to do is we're trying to create, um, we say that we're, we're trying to kind of cultivate confidence wherever we go and that's really baked into into the company in terms of our in terms of our values and why we do what we do um and that's very much about you know you want to move someone from kind of working in quite a risky way but you know based on assumptions and based on um on guesswork through to feeling really confident that they can say we're doing this and we're doing it for this reason because we've got this person this person and this person saying that they want it you know, and it'll result in this outcome, which adds a level of confidence to to their work, and it you know de-risks it. It does all of these different things. So I say it's 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 transitioning from that like from that hell stage right up to the up to that heaven stage, I suppose. Fair enough. Yeah, I get where you're coming from. And then mm. and then just find, have you got a favourite quote, uh, book, or inspirational person that you'd, you'd want to note? Favourite inspirational person. Um, I've been looking a lot recently at um, there's a guy in the uh, in the US called Donald Miller. He's a, um, he's a kind of storytelling expert. Um, he's a, originally an author and then a screenwriter, and he's very interested in the use of storytelling and how to communicate effectively. Um, and so that's just something who I he's a person who I just think uh, has solidified something fairly. Um, widespread into a kind of really easy to follow framework let's say um and yeah I, I think he's just a great resource for anyone who's trying to look at how best to communicate a particular idea or uh you know give a, a speech to people or get across um some sort of you know compelling piece of policy or whatever it might be like you can apply it in lots of different contexts but i think it's basically using this idea of uh, like the power of story and the various aspects of storytelling to be able to 
put a message across because ultimately like that's the those are the things that people remember you know it's a way that we've been communicating for thousands of years um, and there are certain um, there are certain ways in which you can structure information structure communications which kind of almost like tick boxes on a on like quite a psychological level as well um, which allow you to you know clarify what you're doing clarify what you're saying um, so that's that's been like a big inspiration over the last um, over the last few years it's really helped us to um, yeah just to clarify a lot of the stuff that we've been doing that's really interesting Don right we will I'll put him in the show notes and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll find some links and things thank you for that well thank you very much for your time mate that's that's been a really interesting discussion uh, where can people find you what's your social handles and all that kind of stuff um, so you can find us uh, our website is polarinsight.com um, and then all of our social handles are either at polar insight or forward slash polar insight uh, on all the major networks um, and then my my own is uh, at j tattersfield which is my name uh, i won't spell it now feels like it'll probably be in the show notes too um, but yeah uh, come visit our website and, and find out a little bit more about us and um, happy to answer any questions that anyone has brilliant good stuff well thank you very much for your time mate. that's really useful thank you nice one thanks for having me jeremy so what an interesting session, uh, what an interesting business uh, that can add a great deal of value, I think, to so many organisations bidding uh, wherever we interface with communities, which must be quite a lot. Um, so what else have we got going on? So in the rest of the month of March, uh, we've got a drop in session on Thursday uh, this week coming. So we've released this on the Sunday. Uh, so Thursday, 12.30, uh, any of our Patreon members can drop in uh, for a bit of a surgery with me. Uh, and it looks like actually I've already got uh, three experts already signed up as well um, that, that will be on the line. So uh, why not drop into that? Um, and actually this week, uh, just gone, we've released our first leaders interview with John Kelly, uh, Director of uh, Strategic Bids and Proposals at WSP. Um, that's a really interesting series, I hope, of interviews with leaders of bid functions, BD directors, board directors of organisations. I think for the first time having a chat about what they want from us as a discipline, what they want from their people and what their aspirations are uh, for the wonderful world of winning work. Um, so go and check that out in our, our Patreon community. Just 3 99 a month uh, for people to join. Thanks very much. Speak to you soon.